everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with um, former members of the U.S. intelligence community who have amazing stories to tell. Today, I have a very highly credentialed and articulate spokesman on a terribly important subject. And I'm delighted to have him on the program. I've long wanted to uh, be able to attract him, and I'm delighted that he's finally uh, been able to give us some time. John Lachowski has a, a BA degree from um, Cal Berkeley. He has an MA and a PhD from um, Johns Hopkins Sice. He worked as a congressional staffer. He was a special advisor to the Undersecretary of Political Affairs at the State Department. And he was the director for European and Soviet Affairs at the National Security Council. He's also been an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. And he is the founder and former president of the Institute of World Politics. He is now um, the um, president emeritus and the chancellor of IWP. And I'm very, very happy to say a member of AFIO's um, board of directors. John, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. And I just want to thank you for everything you do for AFIO and for the nation. John, the topic today, as you well know, is um, Chinese uh, disinformation. Uh, it's a topic on which you are superbly well informed and have a long background. I think our audience would be really interested to know how you got started on this topic of uh, information operations. Well, um, I uh, got interested in it when I was doing my doctoral research in the in the 1970s. And uh, when I served as a congressional staffer, I did a major uh, study on comparative uh, capabilities in public diplomacy and uh, strategic influence. And a huge part of that involved, and this was comparing U.S. capabilities to Soviet capabilities at the time. And uh, I... Um, uh, became very concerned about the imbalance in uh, in the correlation of forces, so to speak, in this battle space, and uh, where where the Soviets were making huge uh, investments in in propaganda, disinformation, and covert influence operations, and uh, we had been gradually eroding our capabilities in all of this our uh, uh, covert uh, action um, capabilities had been severely eroded as a result of the church and pike committee hearings and and uh, and, and covert political action became a, uh, a a riskier activity for professional intelligence officers uh, and um, we uh, the us information agency had increasingly become a second class citizen in the us foreign policy community and uh, and so there was a systematic neglect of all of these things the soviets had a, a an extremely effective global peace movement we effectively had been defeated in the vietnam war mostly because of propaganda and psychological operations this is what the Vietnamese generals, North Vietnamese generals, uh, had said publicly. Uh, and this is, uh, even though we had won the war militarily by 1972, uh, and this is what the, the, the North Vietnamese 
basically considered that they had been defeated militarily by that time. And the top British diplomat in Hanoi at that time testified so publicly. Um, but here we were so thoroughly demoralized and disinformed, not only by North Vietnamese, but by the global, uh, you know, the international uh, uh, communist and Soviet-led propaganda apparatus. Uh, I was a student at Berkeley uh, during those some of those years, and I watched uh, Soviet front organizations be extremely active on campus and nearby, and I knew some of the players. So uh, when I got into the State Department, I discovered that the U.S. intelligence community and our diplomatic community had not been collecting intelligence on, uh, on Soviet propaganda and relate in active measures. The, the term active measures was effectively unknown. Uh, our counterintelligence community uh, knew nothing about uh, the, the, the Soviet trust operation of the 1920s which was a spectacularly successful false um, opposition that, that uh, the Czechists had uh, established, which ended up attracting the internal oppositionists inside the USSR and uh, had penetrated and controlled and destroyed the external emigre opposition. Uh, it, is, it had succeeded in deceiving 11 Western intelligence agencies for something like seven years and got the West to pay the bill for the entire operation. Uh, an amazing, an amazing, one of the most spectacular uh, offensive political strategic counterintelligence operation of the modern times. And most people in, in, with expertise in Soviet affairs knew nothing about it. And, and so um, we changed the national intelligence topics uh, there was leadership actually on this issue in the State Department. I remember one of uh, your colleagues from the uh, clandestine service had uh, had come uh, and brought the 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 uh, remarkable Soviet defector Stanislav Levchenko uh, to the State Department to teach uh, the, the 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 career foreign service people there about the realities of of Soviet active measures. It was a huge eye-opening uh, experience for everybody to hear about this. Uh, DCI, um, uh, Bill Casey uh, made a ma major effort uh, along these lines to raise people's consciousness about it. And, uh, and, and so the intelligence community and the State Department started doing an excellent job of, of collecting intelligence on all of this. Uh, and then it was analyzed I was a member of the Soviet Active Measures Interagency Group, uh, which proved to be a very successful interagency group. As a matter of fact, it, it served as a model for the success of interagency groups, period. And a whole study on that group was done just a couple of years ago by the Institute of National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University uh, on how uh, an interagency group ought to work. Um, so uh, I was involved in this for quite some time, and uh, at the end of my uh, tour at the NSC, uh, I tried to get us, you know, we had published an annual report on Soviet military power, and, um, and, and I got this, the interagency group on which I was serving to do a, 
an annual report on Soviet political power, which would include their propaganda, their active measures, their cultural diplomacy, uh, their, their trade promotion, their sports diplomacy, and all of these sorts of things that were designed to have strategic influence. But unfortunately, uh, that, that interagency committee was, uh, was dismantled. And, uh, and at the end of the Reagan administration, uh, all attention to public diplomacy, active measures, and so on, uh, evaporated from the U.S. government. And um, we, were also, we had also done a lot of work on the whole question of deception, not just tactical deception, but strategic deception. Uh, the agency had uh, hosted a conference on this uh, and, and raised consciousness throughout the community about deception. Uh, but to this day, uh, as a recent study has been done by one of your former colleagues, uh, um, the, uh, we've discovered that deception is not a systematic um, um, professional discipline in the U.S. intelligence community, and it is so only when we have a CIA director who is personally interested in the subject. So this is a subject which, uh, which I believe needs a lot of study uh, and, and a lot of greater professional expertise in it. And, and, and I got very concerned about this also when I was on the NSC staff because I was receiving uh, classified intelligence cables uh, on, um, that, that had classic Soviet disinformation and strategic deception themes in them with no warning that that's what could be in them. And somebody saw fit to send these cables to senior executives in the Pentagon, the State Department, and the White House. And, and, and I protested uh, that the people who had made, were making those decisions had simply not done their professional homework in understanding what uh, Soviet disinformation was all about. So um, this is a, an, a, an ongoing problem, and today we're facing it in spades. In, in the particularly in the China challenge. Uh, Russia continues to be involved in all of these things, but China is involved in it in a very big way. Um, John, today's topic, of course, is Chinese uh, influence operations in the United States. Yes. And that's a very hot topic. Um, step our audience through uh, some of the highlights of what the Chinese are doing to us. Well, I've been paying attention to this now for uh, almost since the, the, the Berlin Wall came down on the China front. And uh, the Chinese have been, have, have had for a very long time, a, a central strategic objective, which is the psychological disarmament of the United States, our elites, our, our decision-making elites, and, 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 and generally the West. Uh, why? What is this psychological disarmament? Well, if we are intellectually and psychologically disarmed about the possibility that there could be a threat from China, uh, then we will be less and less prepared in our um, uh, military posture, in our counterintelligence efforts, in our efforts to control, to prevent the theft of, uh, of sensitive uh, technology and intellectual property. Um, and so for years now, we have let our guard down with regard to all of these things. 
and and we have actually assisted the Chinese in in building up their technology. We have assisted them in in the development of ten thousand different technologies. The National Science Foundation has been handing new technologies over to to the Chinese. Uh, we we let the Chinese have five thousand visits a year to our national laboratories, where a visit constitutes a stay. Of, of two weeks to two years. That's one visit, 5,000 a year. Uh, it, is, it is, as a former NSA director said, what's going on today has been the greatest theft of intellectual property in the history of mankind. And now China is outpacing us militarily in a number of different spheres. And what has enabled all of this to take place has been a combination of, of strategic influence operations targeting our media, our uh, academic institutions, our think tanks, our business community, um, our politicians, uh, and even Hollywood and other cultural uh, uh, venues, the Chinese American community. And so let's just begin with the media. The, uh, the, the, the Chinese have massive propaganda operations. They have uh, a huge uh, global television and radio broadcasting. They have their internet sites. They, are, they, they have set up their, C, their CCTV operations here in the United States. They, they, they run radio stations here in the United States and at least one of them in Mexico broadcasting to the United States. Uh, they, uh, they pay, uh, have paid millions of dollars to leading media outlets in this country, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, a little less to the Wall Street Journal, and to regionally influential papers like the Des Moines Register, for example. Millions of dollars to pay for a, the China Watch supplement, which is a China daily proxy, which with Chinese communist propaganda uh, being published periodically in those papers. It's, I, I believe that the Washington Post has finally stopped publishing it. But during this whole time, uh, when they published this stuff, you could not read in the pages of the Washington Post or the New York Times, the two leading newspapers in this country, um, any uh, of the really serious developments, uh, uh, strategic developments uh, inimical to the United States. Uh, there are huge, constant reports about the development of their of their military capabilities. Uh, you could not read about their uh, their espionage operations, uh, their active measures operations, and 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 there was and so basically the Chinese um, have imposed upon us. And we have, and too many of us have accepted what I call the four taboos. Uh, what are the four taboos? Well, don't write about their military buildup. If you're a journalist or a scholar, don't write about their espionage. Don't write about their influence operations, their propaganda, active measures, and so on. And don't write about their human rights violations. If you write about those things, you'll make Beijing mad. They will deny you a visa. They may kick you out of the country if you're a journalist. <clears throat> uh, 
You won't be able to do field work if you're a sinologist at an American university or think tank. And, um, and if you write about the stuff that they want you to write about, well, they'll give you more access, they'll romance you, and so on and so forth. They, they have paid, given all expenses paid trips to uh, correspondents from just about every leading media outlet in the United States. Uh, NPR, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the, the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, all the major TV networks, some of the major internet sites like the Huffington Post and these other places like this. I could go on and on with the list of these. And they and and they all expenses paid trips, lavish dinners, and you get a trip and, and you get a nice tour around what I call Chinese Tourlandia. Uh, and there used to be a Tourlandia in the in, in the in the Soviet Union. Now there's one in China. And, uh, and all of this is designed to get good media uh, coverage of what's going on in China. Um, there, are, uh, our, there are other, uh, you know, this kind of uh, influence is, is being exercised also uh, is targeted uh, towards our academic community. And this is perhaps amongst the most um, uh, you know, concerning of all the issues here. There are an enormous number of sinologists in our universities who have been compromised one way or another by China, who have uh, either taken those trips and censored themselves, because self-censorship is a huge part of all of this, uh, uh, or they have taken money from, from the Chinese. And Chinese money has been a huge part of this whole operation. Uh, American universities and think tanks have taken this money. Take a look at some of the blue chip think tanks in, in this country. Uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Atlantic Council, the Brookings Institutions, my alma mater, Johns Hopkins SICE, uh, the Carter Center, the East-West Center, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. All of these have, have either taken money or done joint projects with front organizations of Chinese intelligence. Um, and, uh, they, and, and as a result, so much of the material that comes out of these institutions, not all of it, but an enormous amount of it, seems uncannily incongruent uh, uh, con with Chinese talking points about major strategic issues. Um, the, there are the, the, the Chinese established over a hundred Confucius Institutes uh, on American university campuses. These are uh, Chinese controlled propaganda centers that also are rumored to have uh, a significant role in coordinating espionage operations on our campuses. Um, there are something like 375,000 uh, Chinese students at American universities. They pay full tuition. The universities are totally addicted to them. Uh, I should say uh, my own uh, academic institution, IWP, uh, does not take any Chinese money or does not have a Confucius Institute. But these um, the Confucius Institutes that are ostensibly designed to, um, to teach Chinese language and culture, uh, in fact, are designed uh, to chill 
any uh, uh, criticism that may come from the, the certain precincts within these universities about Chinese activities. Uh, and uh, they are designed also to, uh, to help monitor the activities of Chinese students who might stray from the party line. And of course, amongst those students, uh, an enormous number of them already have, for example, in the, the, if they're going to be studying for an advanced engineering degree, let's say, they already have the advanced degree from China, and they come to get the same degree in the United States. Well, why is that? Well, so that they don't have to start from scratch in understanding what is the cutting-edge research that their American professors are conducting, uh, so that it is much easier for them to target it and ultimately steal it. And every single one of those Chinese students is subject to, to debriefing for intelligence purposes by, uh, by Chinese intelligence. Um, there are, uh, and, and by the way, we, you know, we seem to have lost the, the diplomatic capacity to have a, a policy of reciprocity when it comes to adversaries like China. Um, we have only 20 American cultural centers in China, and they're not controlled by Americans. They're controlled by the Chinese, whereas the, 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 the Confucius Institutes are all subject to Chinese communist speech codes and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so the... Uh, one of the, I'll give you another example of, of, of some, some corruption here. Uh, the, the political neutralization of the U.S. business community, of large segments of it, has been one of the most uh, distressing dimensions of all of this. This is the lure of Chinese money and um, the China market where um, all sorts of businesses think that if they sell one piece of chewing gum to a billion and a half Chinese, that then they're going to make their fortunes. Uh, and, or set up a, a factory in China to manufacture stuff with cheaper labor and so on. The, the price of doing this, of course, is usually that one should uh, bring one's research and development capabilities over to China to make it all the easier for the Chinese intelligence to steal it. Uh, and, and and then uh, another price is to turn those business executives into uh, lobbyists for our quote unquote mutual interests, and that means becoming a lobbyist for Beijing in the halls of Washington and in different state capitals. Uh, and I, I, I I've segued into the neutralization of the business community. Uh, because of its interrelationship with the corruption of our academic community and our think tanks. I'll give you one example. There, was, there is a famous think tank that everybody's heard of in Washington who had a China military specialist who was doing clinical, dispassionate, uh, objective analysis of Chinese military developments. There was a major donor to this think tank who... Uh, had huge uh, China business interests. He was worried that if a larger segment of the American public and decision-making community learned about what this analyst was writing, uh, that, that there would be, uh, people would get worried, they'd be alarmed, 
and that this could give rise to U.S.-Chinese tensions, which could then rock the boat and harm his business interests. So he arranged to have this analyst fired and given a big dollop of, of hush money. Well, then this guy went on to another noteworthy think tank who hired him, uh, which hired him. And, and there, two trustees who were major financial benefactors of, uh, of that think tank, who also had major Chinese, China business interests, um, threatened to resign unless this guy, and, and to withhold their financial support unless this guy was fired. Well, he was fired. So I'll give you another example. Um, we had a, a professor at IWP who had served uh, as a journalist in, in, in East Asia and in Hong Kong and so on for some 20 years, worked for, um, if I recall, Time Magazine when it was a major uh, uh, force in American media. And um, he eventually became associated with Johns Hopkins and then another significant think tank. Well, he started getting alarmed about the unseemly number of former secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, and even CIA and other directors, and even senior military officers who were either directly or indirectly on Beijing's payroll. How? Well, they oftentimes go to some big PR company or you know, consulting firm that is involved in opening doors in China for uh, American CEOs and American businesses. And they get paid by the American company for doing this. But effectively, it is the China business angle that is, is it's Chinese money. It's where it all comes from. So, um, so many of these former cabinet members are not, uh, were not, and still don't disclose their conflict of interest when they come and testify as elder statesmen uh, before Congress, uh, uh, ostensibly dispassionately about U.S. national security interests when they have a conflict of interest. Well, he started complaining about this publicly, but it happened that one of these former cabinet members was on the board of his think tank and didn't like what uh, Monroe was saying, and he had him fired from there. So uh, this, is, this is shocking material. But it's now become so typical, at least for those of us who look at these matters, that it's not shocking. It's de rigueur. And, uh, but this is very, very severe corruption. Now, the, there are, um, you know, I can only imagine uh, Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, and all the rest of that gang green with envy in their graves at what the Chinese have, have, have succeeded in doing in neutralizing the American business community. You know, they, the, the Soviets tried to do this with the U.S.-Soviet Trade and Economic Council uh, in, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and uh, they did succeed in neutralizing some American business executives, but we were much more serious about this. Uh, now we are so psychologically disarmed that we let millions of Chinese uh, roam around the country. We didn't let the Soviets go more than 25 miles from their diplomatic posts. Um, the Obama administration gave 10-year visas 
to 2 million Chinese, 2 million Chinese. There are at least 25,000 Chinese intelligence collectors in Silicon Valley alone. 25,000 in Silicon Valley alone. We have American lawyers who are organizing conferences in Silicon Valley to teach um, Chinese business executives how to circumvent American export controls uh, in order to acquire uh, American technology uh, without technically violating our technology security laws. Uh, this is all incredible. And, and yet it continues uh, with, with, uh, with and, and our counterintelligence you know, uh, capabilities are severely strained and, and outmanned by the sheer volume of, 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 of China's intelligence collection operations. Um, I should mention then another dimension of all of this. And that is their, the, the Chinese, the communist influence over our politicians. And this is one of the most important uh, targets of their strategic influence operations. And here uh, they have many dimensions of it. They, they pay U.S. law firms and lobbying firms to influence our government, both the executive and, and legislative branches. Uh, I've, I've mentioned the, the, the influence of the former cabinet members. Um, they uh, target um, investments in, in specific congressional districts and states in order to be able to have influence over the congressional representatives from those places. Uh, there is a recent example. Uh, I don't want to start mentioning lots of names here, but one of the most prominent members of Congress uh, was faced with a problem where a company that was a joint U.S.-China venture uh, in his district um, was suffering some kind of problems. And he, and in the interest of protecting his constituents, he had to go to bat for that company. But in the process, by doing so, he also helped Chinese strategic interests in a very significant way. Uh, he had virtually no choice as the political representative of, of that. Uh, he, I think he did have a choice, but the problem was that, you know, the realities of protecting his constituents trumped his any concern he might have had for U.S. national security interests. Um, the, the Chinese target uh, politicians all the way down to the most local level, um, uh, state assembly, uh, you know, assembly persons, uh, you know, state legislatures, mayors. Um, we, we hear stories about... Uh, You'll remember uh, Fang Fang, uh, the, the, the Chinese intelligence operative who uh, had seduced uh, a, a member of the U.S. Congress from California. Well, she had also been involved with two mayors for, from the Midwest. By, by targeting uh, people at the local level, this is part of a long-term strategy, because if they can compromise them, uh, at the local level, well, these politicians just might rise up and become state senators, governors, members of the U.S. Congress, uh, U.S. Senate, 
uh, or other political appointees. So there are all sorts of, uh, you know, this, this is a, a, a very, very widespread uh, set of operations. Um, the Chinese contribute to, uh, to our political campaigns. Uh, the, the Communist Chinese gave a $1 million donation to the, uh, the to President uh, then candidate Clinton's uh, primary election campaign uh, in, in its early stages. And it came through a front company uh, uh, based in a Chinese front company based in Indonesia. Uh, they give lots of other uh, campaign donations in order to build uh, uh, the relationships with American politicians. So there are, anyway, that is, a, you know, then, of course, take a look at Hollywood. Uh, this is a, a matter of, of more concern. Um, the, the Chinese uh, have, have attempted to make and have sometimes successfully made uh, purchases of American movie studios. Uh, they own the entire AMC uh, movie theater chain in the United States. Um, in other words, they have a significant foothold in both production and distribution of films in the United States. But what's more influential than that is the fact that they restrict the number of, of movies, uh, of American movies that can be distributed within China and uh, to only about 34 a year. And, as, and because the China market is such an enormous market for American films, the, um, uh, and the Hollywood producers now are catering to that audience and ensuring that they don't do anything that will be offensive to Beijing. So just as one example, uh, there was a Cold War movie called Red Dawn about a Soviet invasion of the United States. Well, Hollywood attempted to do uh, a remake of that, uh, only this one was going to be a Chinese invasion of the United States. Uh, they produced the film, but with Beijing's pressure, they, they, they then miraculously transformed the Chinese invaders into North Korean invaders. And, um, uh, but, you know, that's, that's, of course, a very blatant example. There are other much more subtle examples that are designed where, where uh, Chinese figures are, are made to be the heroes of movies, whereas Americans are made to be the villains uh, and, and all sorts of things like that. So uh, this is, a, this, this is a, a matter of some concern. How one can stop this uh, is, not, is not easy. Now, uh, it, it's not a, there's not an easy answer to it. Anyway, perhaps I will just stop there just for a moment in, in case you have any, uh, any further questions about some of this. John, you've given us a, a rich amount of detail on a um, number of very unsettling topics. Um, you've referred um, a little bit to the theft of intellectual property and um, Chinese um, intelligence operations in the United States. But I think our audience would like to hear a little bit more um, detail about the actual espionage that's going on against uh, 
both uh, U.S. government systems, but also um, our defense capabilities. Because we have permitted so many Chinese engineers and technologists to come to our country and participate in our corporations, in our research facilities, and so on, uh, many of these figures have extraordinary access. And uh, some of them uh, are here ostensibly as immigrants who may have actually been living here for a long time and gotten American citizenship. Uh, but then, uh, you know, you have the curious case of, uh, of, of how some of these figures just seem to be able to go back to China to visit relatives and so on and so forth. I know of one case where um, um, there was a man who was in charge of, well, not in charge of, he was involved in developing software for secure communications uh, between um, American fighter aircraft. Uh, and another case of somebody who was involved in the, the development of secure communications between uh, main battle tanks uh, and other armored vehicles uh, for the U.S. Armed Forces. And uh, these people were um, somehow permitted to go back to China for extended visits uh, even though they had been given access to and were involved in some extremely sensitive uh, military communications operations. Uh, this is incredible to me that anybody should be permitted, if they have this, this kind of, uh, of access, to be able to uh, you know, return to China uh, from which they have ostensibly escaped. Um, and 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 with without you know seemingly without any concern for the fact that the, the sensitive information they possess it could easily be transferred to to the Chinese. Um, there are uh, you know we have people working on on different weapon systems. Uh, you know, I know of one four star admiral who has testified that um, there isn't a single new technology possessed by the U.S. Navy that China has not already compromised. Well, this is, this is a, if this is true, and, and this is a guy who was in a position to know this, uh, it, is, it is crazy. It, I mean, it is, it's crazy that the United States should have such poor protection counterintelligence and security protection of our most sensitive uh, defense secrets. But then, you know, some of, uh, so, so the, 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 the Chinese, Chinese espionage is done essentially in two ways. One is through the use of, of, of traditional human intelligence collection, uh, where trained intelligence officers uh, are busy recruiting uh, Americans, seducing Americans, and all of these, the, the, this sort of thing. Uh, there is also the vacuum cleaner approach, 
where people who are not necessarily trained intelligence officers, like those Chinese graduate students, uh, like Chinese businessmen uh, and others who are all subject to being debriefed by Chinese intelligence, will, will fan out and try to get a hold of whatever they can, uh, they can seize uh, that is within their purview. I gave a talk like this to a, a, an influential audience of, of, of very senior business executives. And I said, please, please, uh, if, if you've got a, uh, an industrial uh, plant, if you've got a factory, if you've got whatever kind of business you have, uh, please don't let a, a, a visiting group of friendly, smiling Chinese businessmen tourists come into your facility. <clears throat> I know of, uh, of one case, and there are probably many like this, but this is just an anecdote from my own personal network, um, of, of uh, a guy who owned a, uh, um, a manufacturing plant in Illinois, and he let a group of friendly, smiling Chinese business executives, business executive tourists come into his factory, and they started uh, taking out their notepads and noting that this machine is in this corner of the room and that machine is 20 feet away from it and that machine is another 30 feet away from that. And they basically took the, the, the blueprint of everything that was done in this manufacturing facility, brought it back to China, replicated it, and in three years later, my, uh, the, this guy's company was completely put out of business. And uh, I told this story to, to these business executives, and one of them said, well, I'm sure glad you told me about this because I own a winery uh, here in California, and, um, and I have some cutting-edge technology. And as a matter of fact, next week I was going to receive a group of Chinese business executives who are interested in my winery, and I was going to show them around. Now I'm not going to show them anything, and I'm just going to ply them with my wine. The, the, the Chinese intelligence approach is basically a, a massive vacuum cleaner, and it is like having a gang of, uh, you know, of 25 uh, adolescents and teenagers come into the 7-Eleven, and uh, five minutes later, uh, they all leave en masse, and uh, there isn't a single candy bar left in the store, and nobody saw anything being taken. So that's kind of the way it works. The topic today has been Chinese influence operations in the United States. I must say it's very unsettling, but told very, very uh, articulately by John Munchowski. I'd like to thank John and the Institute of World Politics for what has been both an informative, but also a rather scary presentation. Thank you, John. You're welcome, Jim. Thank you again for everything that you do, everything you've done in your professional career, and everything that AFIO does for our country.